So why do you think it's the case that nearly 98% of those who, 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 uh, who run the Boston Marathon, considered to be one of the toughest marathons, actually complete the race? Maybe it's the fact that they're all lunatics. But maybe it's because, maybe it's because the 98% are those who've discovered a way to bypass the steep half-mile section of the race known as Heartbreak Hill that greets runners at mile 20. Or maybe, <clears throat> maybe it's because those who finish are the kind of, you know, they're the kind of annoying people, right? They never get blisters. They never get cramps. Their bodies just seem to work perfectly. They never have to overcome any adversity. You know, friends, what do you believe are the keys to finishing your race of faith? Is it a shortcut? Is it avoiding adversity and challenges at all costs? Let's just think about our, our series through Hebrews chapter 11. Right, do you recall what shortcut did Abraham take? I mean, how did he bypass all those years living as a foreigner in the land promised to him? And how did Moses successfully avoid adversity when he chose mistreatment with God's people over the sinful pleasures Egypt had to offer? And as we heard about last week, I mean, how did those who were flogged, imprisoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, how did they manage to live without any serious challenges in their lives? The point is that the Christian life, it isn't finished by finding a shortcut, by evading discomfort. You see, those who finished the Boston Marathon, they know all about Heartbreak Hill. Right? No, one goes, no one hopes to finish that race. Right? Goes into that race believing that somehow Heartbreak Hill has been flattened overnight. Instead, they get ready. And that's what our passage this morning is about. It's about the way to finish the race of faith. And what we'll see in our passage are three ways that we can make it to the end. And so if we're going to finish, we need to remember the right stories, we need to engage the right fight, and we need to get serious about joy. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses one to two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So first, we need to remember the right stories. And this is what the author is reminding his hearers to do when he says that we are surrounded, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. 
And those witnesses are obviously those that we've spent the past several weeks studying in chapter 11. So let's step back and let's think what's gained by remembering their stories. If their lives still speak to us, what are they saying? What is it that they witness to? And I think it's very simply, it's this. This race, this race of faith, it can be run and it can be finished. And yes, we all have to, to, we all have to run our own race. This race of faith isn't a relay. You've actually got to run the whole thing. But that doesn't mean that we're treading new ground. Others have come before us. Others have passed through and overcome the things that we're facing today, things that we'll face and encounter in days and years ahead, things that we're not even aware of. And so we ask, can we remain faithful while surrounded by an unbelieving society? Well, doesn't Noah provide witness that it's possible to listen to God in a society bent on doing evil? And, and can we obey? Can we obey without a perfectly clear picture of what God has in store for us? Well, didn't Abraham set out in faith, not knowing where he was going? Is it really possible to refuse all the world has to offer and to follow after Christ? Well, that's what Moses did when he chose to suffer with God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And what about something like actual torture, intense suffering? Well, as Ryan showed us last week, by faith, it too can be endured. Seymour Martin Lipset was a political sociologist, and he once said, he once said that a person who knows only one country knows no countries. And his point was that it's only by looking across different societies that one can understand what is either typical or unique about one's own. I think in a similar way, that's why the Bible records these stories for us so that we can look across the history of God's people and understand something about our course today. I think what we are to understand is that our course is not unique, right? That we're not trailblazers, right? We are pilgrims following a path that is well-worn by common people, people who've sinned and had setbacks, people who faced stiff opposition, but ultimately persevered by trusting in God. Paul gets at this same idea when he says to the Corinthian church, he reminds them, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He says, God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, friends, it's nearly impossible, I think, 
to live faithfully. When you've convinced yourself your problems are unique, bigger, and tougher than other people's. You know, teenagers, I wonder if you believe the hard things in your life today are totally unlike the hard things your parents faced. My only counsel would be, be careful thinking that way. Because that belief, I think it will tend to isolate you. It will unfortunately shut you off from seeking counsel and wisdom from people who, yes, have faced similar problems. These witnesses are there for all of us to remind us that God does not forget us. That our burdens can be carried by the strength that God supplies. And so when was the last time you felt forgotten by God? Where have you felt overwhelmed, overburdened? And what problems today seem unsolvable. What we have in the Bible are men and women who can bear witness to the truth, the truth that God is faithful, that God will provide us with resources to endure, and that God will shepherd us to the finish line. And our ultimate witness, our ultimate witness is the one that the author calls the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The race we're running, this race, it brings us into the presence of God. That's its culmination. And Jesus, as the founder, set out to bring us there. And as the perfecter, he has completed and secured our entrance into God's holy presence. See, that great cloud of witnesses, they bear witness to another truth, that all of them, like us, needed a high priest to come and cleanse them from sin. So friends, I wonder what story do you replay over and over in your mind? And is that story about you? And that can look like a fixation on all the bad things that you've done that you can't undo. It can also take the form of of boasting about all the great things that you've achieved. And it can also look like a quiet existence that's solely dedicated to the cares of this life. But here's the point. If you play the lead role in your life, if your eyes are always on you, the end of your story will be a horrific disappointment. And our eyes need to be centered and focused on Jesus. They need to be taken off of ourselves and put on the high priest who sacrificed himself for our sins. Right, because with Jesus, we, we actually do have a better story, a better story than we could ever write for ourselves. 
And so along this race of faith, as you meet challenges, as you face opposition, are you remembering that you have a high priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses? A high priest who sits on a throne of grace where you can come freely and always to receive help and grace to keep you going. Progress in the Christian life is always tied not to self-confidence, but to a deep confidence in the gospel. Because knowing your sins are forgiven is the power to deal with the sin that remains in your life because forgiven sins are defeated sins. And that's why the author calls his hearers to lay aside, to lay aside every weight in the sin that clings so closely. So the author is saying here that if we're going to finish this race, we need to engage the right fight. And the fight is about, it's about shedding what's going to keep us from running well. And I think the two things mentioned in verse one are similar, but they're not identical. There are two categories here. There's those things that we would, we would put in the weight bucket and other things that we would put in the sin bucket. So first, what is, what is meant by a weight, a burden, a hindrance? Well, it's what my friend did in the sixth grade, showing up to gym class on the scheduled day. We all knew what was coming. On the scheduled day that we were to run the mile, wearing Doc Martens, right? He wasn't, he wasn't cheating. He was complicating things by making an unwise, maybe stylish, but very foolish decision, right? He was unnecessarily slowing himself down. Right? The Christian life isn't less than avoiding sin, but it is more than that, right? When it comes to your choices, choices about how you'll spend your time, choices about how you'll spend your money, your energy, choices about relationships. Right? We need to take additional steps beyond just asking, well, is it wrong? Is it sinful? So we need to ask questions like, will this help me grow? Right? Will this bring me closer to Christ? And even, will this decision benefit other Christians? Will it benefit my church? Right, how will my witness to non-believers be strengthened through this path and not that one? Right, students, I remember always wanting to know where my parents would draw the line on something. Why? So I could hug that line. It's like when your parents tell you not to touch your brother and you put your finger right there. When you hug the line, you can say that you haven't broken their rules. And you can feel like you have a lot of freedom living that way. But really you don't. Because freedom is about more than not doing the things that will get you in trouble. 
Right? Freedom is about growing into the life that God calls us to in Christ. Right? So freedom at your age isn't simply about avoiding your parents' punishments. It's about choosing those things that will bless and honor your parents. Right? Hugging the line might keep you from getting your phone taken away, but will it lead you to love and to serve other people? I think that's a better question to ask yourself. Right? Our fight is against all those things that weigh us down spiritually. Right? It's a fight against making the kinds of choices that will make what is already a difficult race more difficult. But it is also, yes, it is a fight against sin. Those things that are not morally neutral. And I don't think the author has a specific sin in mind. Because the phrase which clings so closely, I think it's about sin's effect on us. Right? What does sin do? It entangles us. It trips us up. It, it takes us to the ground. And we know that's what sin does. And so why don't we fight like we should? Right? Why do we allow sin to be a comfortable companion along our race? Back in chapter three, the author gives another warning about sin. He said in verse 13, he said, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by, and this is the key phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. That's what sin does. It's sin deceives by getting us to downplay the harm it can unleash in our lives. Right? Sin always wants to minimize what it will cost us. Right? That's and the way that we work against sin's deceit is to keep asking, well, what is God's assessment? Because we aren't wise enough, we certainly aren't moral enough to evaluate sin on our own. Just think about the evils that can be done and have been done when the loudest and strongest cultural voices get to determine what is right and wrong. Right? What in the creation can bear the weight? Can you? Can bear the weight of deciding between good and evil. You know, we can examine the created world, as one author points out, to find out what is the case but never what ought to be the case. That's why we need God's unwavering judgment on these things. And God's judgment never, never minimizes sin, even the smallest. Our Westminster Confession says that no sin is so small that it does not deserve damnation. Thomas Brooks and good Puritan fashion said that there's infinitely more evil in the least sin than there is in the greatest miseries and afflictions 
that can possibly come upon you. See, friends, the first step in a lifelong battle against your sin is to reckon with the reality of its deep offensiveness to God. Our sensibilities are not infallible. And today's values are not eternal. I think we need to remember that sin is actually not foundational. It is not a foundational aspect of our identity. It is what spoils and denigrates what is foundational. That we are to bear God's holy and righteous and loving image. Let's be clear though. We don't finish our race and come into God's presence because we've perfectly laid aside our sin, that somehow we, on our own, have reached perfection. The the guarantee that we'll finish is because God has poured out his hatred against our sin on another, right? His son, our substitute, But part of the evidence that we can observe in this life that brings assurance that we will finish, that we are making progress, is a real fight, a real struggle against sin. In other words, what's true of all Christians is that our sin, which has been forgiven, will not enjoy a comfortable ride with us through life. Instead, we'll seek to starve it. We'll seek to kill it by all the means that God has given to us through prayer, through by studying and meditating on his word, through worship, fellowship with other Christians. We all know that there are many fights in our world, and our world would like us to get entangled in all of them. We just need to make sure that we're engaging the right one, right? the one that takes place within our own hearts. And our last point, if we're going to finish well, we need to get serious about joy. Now, Before Jesus went to the cross, Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus was in such agony that as he prayed, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when you read that, you know that you know, other people throughout history, before and after Jesus, have faced gruesome deaths before. But Jesus was facing more than a gruesome death. That wasn't the source the cause of his deep agony. The cause of his agony was that he was facing what he had never known before, his father's displeasure. He was about to go under the sword of God's judgment. And what brought him through, what kept him on the cross, was the joy that was set before him. And what that means is that for Jesus, there was a greater joy than escaping that judgment. 
There was a greater joy than simply evading the shame of the cross. And so for Jesus, forsaking the cross would have meant losing out on ultimate joy. And so what was the joy he pursued? What did Jesus gain through the cross? What was our perfection? Listen to what the author says back in chapter 10. He says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And this is what he achieved. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, Jesus' joy was the accomplishment of our ultimate good. Because nothing greater could be given to fallen sinners than their perfection. See, here's what that means. The most loving act, the greatest good that anyone had ever done was performed by someone pursuing his joy. And do you see how important it is to pursue real joy? To have, to live for something better than fleeting pleasures. Because to be serious about the joy that is to come is the key to our love. You know, we see an example of this in Hebrews. Back in chapter 10, in verses 32 to 34, the author, he writes, he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you, and this is the amazing part, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you had a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, because you had a joy that was better than holding on to your property, you loved your brothers and sisters who were suffering. You did them a great good at the cost of your possessions. You see, people who live, people who live for earthly possessions, they don't do that. And people who live for a comfortable, uncomplicated life don't do what these people did. So why did they do it? The text says that they were enlightened meaning they heard and believed the gospel. They had heard how Jesus was publicly exposed to reproach and affliction for them, for their joy. Friends, the gospel tells us that Jesus went to the most shameful and agonizing place so we could come into the most glorious and pleasant place. 
The gospel says that Jesus took the shame of the cross so that we could gain glory in heaven. And because of the gospel, we too can go to what might be considered shameful, agonizing places for the good of others. It means that we can embrace hard things to help one another endure. It means we can forego earthly pleasures to bring comfort to one another. It means our lives can be complicated because our joy doesn't depend on what people can do for us. Joy depends on being with Jesus forever. And by dying for our perfecting, that is what Jesus has accomplished. When your joy flows from Christ, you love in a way that's not possible when your joy springs from the passing things of this world. The kind of people who help others finish the race of faith are the ones who count Jesus a greater treasure than their property, than their reputation, than their safety, and even their lives. And that's why we want to be serious about the ultimate joy of the universe. Because we care about how others finish. Because we don't want to see people lose out on Jesus. See, there's no other race worth finishing than the one that we run by faith, looking to Jesus, because at the end of this race, we get to see him. And we get to be with him forever without any of our sin. So my encouragement, continue to pursue your joy. And along the way, pay any cost to seek that joy and to bring that joy to others. Let's pray. Lord God, as we think back over our time in this great chapter, we want to be encouraged. We want to be strengthened. We want to be the kind of people who live and run by faith. The kind of people who look away from themselves, who fix their eyes on Christ. Would you please give us the grace to be those kind of people, all to the glory and praise of your name. Amen.